Yet another Zookeepers interview here with a former UMass Journalism alum, Jeff Howe, now of The Athletic, uh, formerly of the Boston Herald, Patriots beat reporter, now joining over to The Athletic, which I think everyone is. Now I think if you are a sports journalist, you're just going to The Athletic. It's like a rite of passage now, don't you think, Jeff? Hey, I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. So if, if I'm going to do it and everybody else wants to do it, hop on board. Absolutely. Uh, for, I, I don't want to beat around the bush at all. Uh, I'm a senior at UMass, sports journalism major as well. Uh, about a month until I graduate, and I need a job. So my very first question, uh, can you make me the editor-in-chief at The Athletic? Can you, now, now that you have the there? Love it. Absolutely. I, you know, yeah. Very minimal qualifications just coming out of, out of college, but I think I could bring a lot to the table for you guys right away. You know, what they told me was, A, they want me to cover the Patriots, and B, they want me to hire whoever the hell I want. So I think uh, we, just, we just met one of the qualifications right there. So I have, I have that hiring power. Exactly. UMass looking out for UMass right away. The Alumni Association exactly. would that's, be proud. That's all. That's my number one goal when I wake up in the morning and the last thing I think about when I go to bed at night, just Absolutely. how to make UMass better. <laughs> exactly. So which years did you go to UMass? When, when did you graduate? I was there... I graduated in 06, and I got there, so I transferred in from Middlesex uh, because I started at UNH as a business major, and that didn't really go as anybody planned. So, let me see, I, I was there for two and a half years, so whatever that means, uh, 04, end of 03, I think, is when I got there. End of 03, so that's right around when UMass was pretty good at football. I mean, if you graduated 06, that means you, you left a year after they lost to Appalachian State, I believe. Uh, I gra- so I graduated in the spring of '06. They lost to App State winter of '06, but I was oh, at gotcha. the game. Uh, it was a uh, I-, I covered the football team for the Collegian for those the '05, the '04 and '05 seasons, and then I stayed pretty close to the team in '06 because I had some friends on the team. And when they got when they beat Montana in the semifinals, me and my friend were texting. We booked our tickets that night. And my friend was living in Arkansas, so I flew down to his place in uh, Little Rock and drove through, let's see, went out Little Rock the first night, then we went out in Memphis the next night. We drove through Nashville on our way to Chattanooga, went to the game that night, you know, things started well, and then, you know, went downhill from there. But then, uh, and then I flew out of Birmingham the day after the game. So it had a nice little southern road trip out of nowhere. Yeah, nice. I mean, we went down. So you being a collegiate guy, me being a WMUA guy, we already got a little beef going on. So maybe this whole athletic thing won't work out after all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I covered the football team for a little bit. I did a couple of road trips. We did Notre Dame. I went down to South Carolina my junior. Uh, a lot of good times with that. Um, speaking of that Montana game, uh, Matt Fator, I'm sure you're aware of him. He's been covering the team yep. for the uh, Gazette for a while. Great guy. He said that the, the scene at Montana when UMass won that semifinal game was actually one of the coolest uh, just settings for a football game that he's ever seen. And I looked up the stadium there in Montana. It's like a, right up against a mountain. It, it looks beautiful. Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't make that trip, but I watched it on TV. I watched Kevin Morris call another halfback pass inside the red zone that I didn't really understand. But uh, those are the two things. I mean, I knew, I knew going out to Montana. I can't think of the town that it's it's in, but I've heard it's like the greatest stadium experience in one AA or whatever it's called these days. Yeah, uh, I think FCS now. I think it's called. Yeah, uh, it's in Missoula, Montana. 
So there you go. That's the town. Yes, that's exactly. Uh, it. I, I had to look that up. I'm not up to date on my Montana cities and towns. Uh, if you, yeah, if you could forgive me on that. Um, when did you know that you wanted to be a beat reporter? When along your line of you know coming through, maybe covering UMass? When did you know that this was what you wanted to do? It's an interesting question because when you, I mean, so I did some TV stuff in high school. I went to Lowell High and. Like, right before I got there, I think when I was in the seventh grade, the state gave Lowell High a $40 million grant, and they built a million-dollar TV studio. So I got some really cool experience there. Then I had a math teacher who told me that I'd never make it in the media and I should go to school for business, which is sort of bad. But anyway, uh, I went to UNH as a business major and failed out within a year and a half. And that's when I was just like, you know what? I, I mean, I failed point my GPA. I don't know if you know this, but when you fail out of a school and you have less than a 2.0, you can't go to any other school. Uh, apparently, in my case, the only exception was the community college that I grew up looking at outside my bedroom window yeah. every single day of my life. So I went there, and that's when I was like, all right, you know what? Forget what everybody else is telling me I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Got into the journalism program there, transferred into UMass. Next, I was a communication major, so I had even less work to do than than you can even imagine when I was there. So I just, I, I spent all my time down at the Collegian, and I covered women's lacrosse when I showed up. That was going to be the next I, question, if you did any other sports. Yeah, so women's lacrosse, I've done some of that. Yeah, so that was my first beat, and I, you know, I made it my own. I, I tried as hard as I possibly could with it. And the next semester, I was promoted to assistant sports editor. That's when I worked with Bob McGovern, now at the Herald, and he became one of my best friends. And, uh... I covered men's hockey, uh, obviously football, and then men's lacrosse the final two years. So I kind of made – that's when I started to realize that I, I liked the reporting aspect of it. You know, when you go through college, you're just like, oh, you know, I could write as, as well as anybody, and, and I followed Boston sports growing up, so why couldn't I be a beat reporter? But then you kind of realize once you start reporting on stuff that – he actually, it, there's a whole lot more to it. You could be Shakespeare as a writer, but if you're not a good reporter, if you can't get people to talk to you, uh, if you don't have any good like social skills, then you're yeah. not going to become a good reporter. So that kind of was a big realization. And then I got out of school. I worked at the Boston Metro for a couple of years, not as a beat reporter, until uh, the, the Celtics acquired Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. And the Metro was like, hey, you know, we're going to start covering the Celtics. So I got a little more experience there, and then ran in, I got laid off and then ran into a snag with some employment stuff. And I, I was still living at home with my parents, luckily, but I reached out to Nesson, and I was like, hey, if you guys need anything, you know, let me know. I've covered the Celtics the last two years, did some of this and some of that. And they're like, well, how about you write a Patriots story? I'm like, all right, I'll give you a Patriots story. They paid me $25 for that story. One of those, like, you get paid by the that. word sort of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it ended up being the, the, the first story I wrote was uh, the Matt Castle-Mike Brabel trade to the Chiefs, and uh, kind of escalated from there. They gave me a little more work, and then by the time the 09 season was rolling, I was their beat reporter, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And I got to the Herald in 2012, and, and again, you know, it's just been like every year has been better than the previous year. So it's not like, I mean, do you ever know that you want to be a beat reporter? I don't know. It, it, sometimes you just back your way into something, and, and it turns into your career. Yeah, it just sort of happens out of nowhere, and then you, you suddenly realize, oh, wait, I'm actually not too shabby at this, and then 
it, the, the rest is sort of history from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love it. I'm pumped. I mean, it's it's a great job. It's different every day. It's I'm covering a, the greatest dynasty in, in probably NFL yeah. history. And, and not just that, I mean, transcending across all sports. This is one of the greatest experiences of covering a team that any beat reporter could ever ask for, given the success and, and the people involved. And I mean, the greatest quarterback of all time, probably the greatest head coach of all time. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate, and I it's it's awesome. My family's from here. My wife's family's from here. Haven't had to move. I mean, it just it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. So now that you've moved on from the Herald, what has made the Athletic such you know such a good destination for it? What 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 is it with everyone going there? Because Jim McCaffrey's going there now, I believe, to cover the Red Sox. She's a great reporter. She was with Mass Live. You're going over there. It seems like everyone is transferring over to the Athletic. What makes that so appealing to someone like you? Well, for, for my case, it was, there was a combination of a lot of things. But the thing I really like about The Athletic is, you know, I had some people kind of in my ear saying, hey, The Athletic might be coming to Boston, and what they do sort of suits your strengths. And that's, I really like to get, you know, the interviews that other people don't get. Or you know, I get players to open up when they don't always necessarily talk to the media. And, you know, a couple examples, you know, Malcolm Butler, his, his first, extensive comments after the Super Bowl were a phone call with me. Uh, last year when, or two years ago when Jamie Collins was traded, Dante Hightower gave, you know, that was one of his best friends, and he talked to me and didn't talk to anybody else about it. So that sort of stuff. Uh, the in-depth feature reporting that you get to spend a little extra time on a story, maybe it takes you a couple days or a week to put together. You know, that's what the athletic wants. They want things to be different, and they want all of it to be, you know, one-on-one interviews. It's so easy, I think, for reporters to to get lazy and, and just sit in the scrums and, and collect audio and, and and quotes and then just put a, a story together. But I've always hated that. I always want everything I do to be unique. And the athletic, that is exactly what their model is. They want they're they're asking you to pay a subscription fee, and that's still not commonplace in this business. So. In order for us to justify people spending money on a subscription, everything we write has to be different, and the coverage might not be completely traditional. Where, if, you know, let's say there's a roster transaction at nine o'clock at, at night, you know, I might not have to all of a sudden drop everything I'm doing, get to my computer, and write 200 words on it if it's not a meaningful transaction. It's more about taking the future stories, what, you know, kind of you know stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. They just want really good quality stuff that takes a little more time to do. So I love that about them. Absolutely. And that's probably a pro for you considering the time that you got into the Patriots once you stepped foot at one Patriot place. I mean, obviously, besides Brady, the the core of the team kind of came around that time. McCordy, Gronk, uh, Edelman, guys like that. Hightower was drafted at like 2012 or so. Uh, So you probably know a lot of those core guys and have talked to them plenty of times and, you know, have a good relationship with them. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I walked into that locker room for the first time as somebody who was younger than almost every single. I, you know, I actually I did like some occasional Patriots reporting in '06 through '08, but it was like once a week or you know twice a month, something like that. I wasn't a beat reporter by any stretch. But I, the first time I walked in there, I was younger than basically every single human being in the locker room. And now I I know Brady's older than me, and I'm about the same age as Gostowski. So I'm basically like, you know, one of the oldest people in that locker room now, which is really, 
weird. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, Gostowski, Slater, and Brady are the only guys on the on the roster who have been down there longer than me. And like you mentioned, the 09 draft, it was Chung, it was Edelman, Ken, McCordy, you know, and so on and so forth. So these are guys that I've built up relationships with over the course of a handful of years. And, you know, it's cool because, like, I, I'm – I got a wife and a couple kids now. They're starting to get married, having kids. So it's almost like we're all growing together. Not that we're like, you know, friends or anything like that, but these are guys that you talk to a handful of times a week. And it's, it's just interesting to see how, like, all of our lives are sort of changing in a similar sort of pattern. Absolutely. Uh, now, time to shift a little bit. Uh, again, I don't want this to be, you know, a full interview of just, oh, what's the future of journalism, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Again, yeah. it's a it's Zoom Ants Barcelona affiliate thing, like to kind of keep it loose. Uh, so shifting back a little bit towards your UMass days, who do you think was the funnest, most impressive player to watch at UMass in any sport? It could be football, basketball, whatever it is. Who was the, the most electrifying athlete that you saw during your tenure? Uh, let's see. Hockey, it was John Quick. And yep. he, I mean, he was outstanding. His, his record speaks for itself. Football, uh, Liam Cohen was the quarterback. He's somebody I've still stayed close in close contact with. Uh, they had, man, they had some real, Shannon James was this awesome safety. He was like the, I mean, he was their great free safety when Ahedabo was the strong safety. Uh, they had, I mean, they had a ton of defensive talent. Don Brown was the head coach. He was a great guy to hang out, uh, to talk with. And then on, on lacrosse, you know, they had Sean Morris and Jack Reed, who were two first-round picks in Major League Lacrosse, two guys that uh, I became friends with and have remained in touch with over over the last, basically since we all graduated together. I saw Jack Reed just a couple weeks ago. And uh, so sort of sport by sport, I mean, I remember one of my favorite stories, this kid, R.J. Cobb, he was a cornerback, a kick returner, a running back. He played some wide receiver. I mean, he did every, he was like the Devin Hester of the UMass team. And uh, he had, he was just this hilarious, awesome personality. And RJ had, he had his initials, RJ, tattooed on the back of his bicep. And I was like, RJ, why, why do you have uh, your initials tattooed on the back of your arm? That seems like a strange place to put him. And he was just like, he just smiled. He was like, so when I'm running, they know who they're chasing. He was like this really, really like hilariously cocky kid, but he was like down to earth, fun to hang out with, and, and you know there was so there were a lot of different types of characters and personalities. Some of them, uh, you know, maybe not the biggest personality in the world, but you know Liam Cohen, just watching him play, stepped in for Tim Day as a, a starter as a freshman, right around the time Ricky Santos took over at UNH, and just two guys who did it completely differently. You know, Santos was obnoxious and, you know, start, like to pound his chest on the field and, and look, came across as arrogant and cocky. Had UMass's quarterback doing it in a more professional way. So, I don't know. There were just uh, there were a lot of good personalities and athletes back then. Absolutely. I think if there's one thing I take away from this interview, Jeff, it's uh, the fact that I need to get an RJ jersey now. I, I think that's the, <laughs> the top of my list now. I, I need... I need that man's jersey. I, lo- I love that confidence that he has there that you just told me about. Now, obviously, you know, UMass, you know, as you see, you have a lot of great UMass memories. Uh, obviously, more people know about the Patriots. All people know the personalities from there. So I just have a few questions that I'm sure listeners are thinking 
uh, right now, generally speaking, about some of the guys in the locker room. Because, again, you're around them basically every day, especially during the season. You would know the answers more than as well as anyone. First question I got, uh, is Gronk actually addicted to the number 69 in real life off camera, or is that just a bit? No, no, he is. And it's, <laughs> it's so it's so awesome. Because, see, this is the thing that I, I, I don't think people outside of New England really understand, is that that is genuinely his personality. None of this is an act. And that's why it's so <laughs> funny to me. I mean, I'm not the most mature 35-year-old on the planet, but... The whole 69 thing was completely like, I, I left that stuff back in high school, maybe college, I don't know. But then Gronk brings it back, and I'm like, you know what, this is actually, this is too funny to ignore. Yeah. And it, it really didn't even start until that San Diego trip in 2014. When, when he, he taped he, it on his back? Yeah, and it was, <laughs> it just took off from there, and he thinks it's hilarious. I mean, I walked up to him after, uh, he didn't catch a pass in, in week 17, so we were stuck on 69 passes for the season. And I was like, so, uh, do you know how many catches you finished with? And he, was, he just burst out laughing. He's like, yeah, <laughs> 69. So, <laughs> Get it? Like, he is absolutely obsessed with it. And it's hilarious because it's genuine and he doesn't try to be somebody he's not. You know, a, a well-placed 69 joke on Twitter or in real life, it's good. When it gets to the point when, like, all just the normal people get in the joke and they reply to nice everything, it, it's like, it's like, oh, nice, nice, nice. Like, okay, it kind of loses its luster a bit. Gronk laughs at 69 as hard as he did the first time every single time. It's like the first time he heard a 69 joke anytime he hears it referenced anywhere. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's the, lit, I don't know, the biggest little kid ever, however. <laughs> I mean, but again, it's who he is, which is awesome. Uh, besides Gronk, because I think everyone would imagine that he's one of, if not the most fun guy in the locker room trying to keep everything loose, besides him... Who do you think is the most interesting and fun guy in the locker room not named Rob Gronkowski? Probably Julian Edelman. I mean, yeah. he is, if it, if it weren't for Gronk, I mean, I think you saw Edelman's personality for the first time after they won the Super Bowl in 2014, and he was jumping around the duck boats and having the time of his life. And I mean, that was, I went up to him afterward and I was like, man, I think you just became like a Boston celebrity. And he's like, ah, what do you, you know, he's kind of, shaking it off i'm like i don't think you understand the magnitude of how much people enjoyed watching you do that uh one of the interesting parts of the my job is when they have the duck boat parade there's immediate boat and so you get to see this stuff firsthand and you get to see the reaction and you know when when people cut loose and show their personality and, and i think since then you've kind of seen edelman's personality really really come out because he was a whole lot more reserved his first four five years as a patriot but Man, when that happened, I think you saw the true Julian Edelman, and he's a riot uh, himself. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would have probably guessed Edelman. If I could get one guess, I would probably say him, you know, him yelling how he's going to get squirrely and stuff like that, all the stories of him during Do Your Job. Those were all hilarious, and uh, I would imagine that he brings that same intensity and that same that same amount of fun into the locker room. Um Obviously, you know, the face of the franchise is Tom Brady. I don't think that's any breaking news to you or anyone. Um during press conferences, he, alongside, like Belichick, you know, kind of does, you know, the one day at a time thing, you know, good team ahead of us, got to be good in all three facets of the game, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. If you ask enough people around the league, though, I think Terrell Suggs has said this before, and a couple other guys have too, 
They say Brady is one of like the chippiest guys in the league and will always chirp people all the time. They say he's a huge trash talker. Do you see that in the locker room? Not. I mean, he is. That's accurate. Uh, do I see it in the locker room? No, because I think he is very protective of his image and he's smart about when uh, the cameras are around. And plus, I mean, the whole team knows, all right, the media is going to be in the locker room today from 11.45 to 12.30 or whatever. So, like, that's plastered everywhere. And, you know, Brady is also, like, the guy's in the film room more often than not, too. So he, he's not always in the locker room. But I there are some unbelievable stories that tell you exactly. I can plug the book that me and Scott Zolak wrote. That's Do it up. Why not? Number. And there, there are going to be some awesome Tom Brady stories. Can you sh- can you share one of them right now? Are you allowed to share any of them? Just one. Uh, you know, one of them. Yeah, the one of them that comes off the top of my head. This, I, this is maybe like the seventh best story in the Brady chapter. So, if you like this one, there are a whole lot better ones. If you don't like this one, well, there are a whole lot. This better is what ones. we call in the, the biz anyway. a tease. This is a big old tease. Absolutely. Yeah, big J move. <laughs> so he, when when he uh, came to town, he uh, he. Yeah, he got Ty Law's condo. So he had a really cool setup. Uh, they, they had this big game room, pool table, a bunch of, you know, Sega and all that stuff, whatever it was back in 2000, 2001. And they would have, like, epic, epic pool uh, matches or and, uh, you know, video game stuff. They'd have Mario Kart battles. And they sometimes it'd be for, like, a buck. Sometimes it'd be for a little more than that. I mean, there were, you know, if you lost, you had to you know run around the neighborhood with maybe not your full wardrobe on or stuff like that but there were so many times uh that and i talked to people who were were close to brady and all this stuff and they were like man you'd be like three quarters of the way through a game or you know you'd be playing a mario kart race for a few minutes and and you were close to beating him and he would just get so pissed off that he would get up and he would like slam his controller in the ground or like chuck it at the wall and you know if the controller obviously was on a cord back then uh, that would jerk the whole system. Yep. So the ha- system would freeze. And, having having had a PS2 would... for years, it <laughs> it does it. I've done it multiple times. It still works. Still, it's a tough little cookie yeah. my PS2, but I, I I definitely know the struggle. Yeah. So that was you know Brady would do that over video games as much <laughs> as as anything else. That guy he does not want to lose in anything. Oh, that fires me up. I could listen to stories like that all day. The fires me up to go to just a random journalism class. Like, let's go. Like let's answer these questions by the teacher. Brady just has that effect on me and, and, you know, people all over New England. Um, We can't mention Brady without also mentioning Belichick, and everyone knows he's all business. Does he loosen up even one bit after a win, or is it only after the big games, like if they win the Super Bowl or the AFC Championship game? Is it always just, you know, the same old stuff, like no one gets – like he never gets excited for anything – is, that, is it that same old stuff, or does he, you know, when the cameras aren't rolling, does he tend to have a little bit more fun, you know, cracking jokes a little bit, keeping guys looser? Uh, he definitely does. Not with the media, especially not during the Yeah, season. I would imagine when, when, the, when the cameras aren't rolling, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, I, I bet like Tom Curran would tell some better stories because he knows Belichick a little better than I do. Uh, he's just, you know, been around for the entire Belichick era. And, you know, a little closer to his age, but um, it's, he, you know, he would, with his players, yeah, he'll cut loose, and it could be a regular season win. They've had, you know, they had a couple last season when, you know, they probably shouldn't have won and then pulled off like a crazy comeback or whatever. You know, they have a few of those every year, it seems, but uh, those are, you know, he'll, he'll really 
start to smile and joke around with the guys and then immediately, all right, yeah, I'll see you on Monday afternoon. So if you get a minute of that type of Belichick, that personality, that sort of helps the players, you know, get through their day. And and it's a tough place to play. So when they see that they can lighten his mood just a little bit, uh, that's part of the reward, I think. Uh, you you mentioned like one of those you know those quick little interactions with Bill. I think the best one I heard was on uh, part of my take. Shameless promotion for the company. Uh, any, anything anything for the brand. Uh, but Edelman went on part of my take a couple months ago, um, and he said that he was working out at at Gillette. You know, staying late. I think he may may have been recovering from an injury or what, whatever it was. And he saw Bill in there. He was walking on the treadmill, um, and so. Edelman tried to time it that he was coming out with Belichick to talk to him because, again, he, he was only you know a rookie or a second-year guy. He didn't really talk to Bill all that much. Um, walks up next to him as they're going to their car. This is late at night. And Edelman goes like, uh, oh, wow, wow, Bill. Like, you, like, you're only leaving now? You've been working all day. Like, this is crazy. And Bill just goes, yeah, it's better than being a plumber. I'll see you tomorrow, yeah. Julian. <laughs> and he just walks away. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was Belichick back with the Browns too. When he took over with the Browns, there was uh, you know there were stories of, and, and Belichick still does this to this day. And when we walk out of the media room, I don't know how Belichick screwed up and allowed himself to be on a treadmill next to a window that was like adjacent to the media workroom as we leave every night. But uh, he's he's on that treadmill into all hours. But this has been his thing for like thirty years, if not longer. He would uh, back with the Browns. You know, he would. He was still new with this thing. He was known as a great defensive mind, but everybody's still trying to figure out his personality and how to work around that. They would. Uh, the assistant coaches would all be sitting in, in a meeting or just hanging out, talking at the end of the day. Maybe it's five, six o'clock, and a random coach would be like, or like a new coach, or let's just say like a consultant, like a you know, like Brett Bielema is right now, like somebody in that type of role who maybe just hasn't worked with Belichick before. Uh, part-timer, just somebody who comes in is like, hey, you know what, let's go grab a beer. And those coaches would be like, we're not leaving until Belichick gets off that treadmill. Because if <laughs> Belichick gets off that treadmill and he wants to, if he has like some film or a play that he wants to break down and we aren't here, tomorrow's going to be the worst day ever. So this is something that's gone on for decades. You just got to get that cardio in. Hey, you know, I, you want to live long. If you can't live long, I mean, what else can you do, I guess, right? Exactly, yeah. Always looking forward, you know, for the next move Belichick is. Um, 51, Super Bowl 51. Perhaps, you know, the, the greatest just game in NFL history. Definitely the best comeback. I don't think there's any debating that. Um, one of the craziest moments in sports history, that 28-3 that to comeback. Uh, don't even have to really, you know, introduce it any further than that. We all know what we're talking about. You being up in the press box of that game, with everyone, I know that the old adage is no cheering in the press box, and I'm sure you weren't actively cheering like "Let's go Pats." But what was the mood like as the comeback was going, from when it started, when Coleman scored that last touchdown for Atlanta to make it 28 to three, to James White running it into the end zone in overtime? The, the the mood had to have been ridiculously different in the press box. There had to have been something like we are witnessing one of the historically craziest events in sports history right now. It had to have been, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I remember I took a cell phone video of James White's touchdown. So I was just sort of sitting there trying to make sure I could capture the moment and hoping that, like, the video would be awesome and, you know, it wasn't anything special. But 
the whole it was a some somewhat of a feeling of disbelief, but obviously if you follow this team as closely as, as we all do around here in whatever, you know, facet it is, you know that they're capable of these things. But man, when they so they go into halftime down twenty one three and then they come out and they force a three and out and Edelman takes that punt back to midfield and I was like, Holy crap, like this team's ready. This is a different football team. But then uh, Edelman drops that third down pass, and I, I think they went three and out, or maybe it was a quick first. They had four plays and punted. And I'm like, all right, well, that's, that, there goes that. And then the Falcons go down and make a 28-3. And that was the point when I was like, all right, maybe this comeback isn't going to happen. And then from there, they had that long, long drive. And remember when there was like four minutes to go in the third quarter, it took them like two minutes to run three plays. Yeah, they, they, were they, they everything. I was always questionable that 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 is a little bit of re, uh, revisionist history. I feel no one really brings that up. They were definitely dragging their feet a little bit. It seemed it was crazy how slow they were they were working. I was like yelling at the TV. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm in a party with like 25 people, and everyone's you know it, it acts like a funeral. I'm yelling at the TV like get to the line. Like they need to get something going. Yeah, it was it was bizarre. So it was like all right, you know, 28 three. I'm not writing them off. I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, maybe let's see what you got on this next possession because they were moving the ball. They moved the ball all game long, and there's that Legara Blunt fumble. Obviously, the Brady pick six. Uh, so, like, there was just so many little things that were happening. It was just like, hey, you know what? This probably isn't their day. But then in the fourth quarter, I mean, that high tower strip sack. It was like, oh my goodness, they're going to win this game. Yep, that was a turning point. And, I and think, you know what? I will say, I, I think, obviously, it was the greatest comeback ever. I still think Super Bowl Forty Nine was a better overall game. Thank you. I've had this argument with my friend so many times. And, uh, like, in 51 is my favorite game I've ever seen because of the comeback. The better game was 49. It was back and forth. It was, it was a 10-point lead, which I think tied the biggest Super Bowl comeback. But still, it's only 10 points. It just goes to show you how difficult it is to win the Super Bowl. But that game was basically back and forth from start to finish. And that, that game was start to finish, first to fourth quarter, a better game than 51 because the first half of 51 was garbage. Well, yeah, and it was two teams that you knew were great. Like, the Patriots didn't have anything to prove. I know they hadn't won in 10 years at that point, but that team didn't have anything to prove. And the Seahawks, if they had won, the argument all week was that they had just put together the best defense uh, in NFL history considering – the era and you know the time when they're doing it so that's a team that's going for a, a historical type of legacy as well and they're hitting the hell out of each other in that first half i remember it was like midway through the first quarter and i turned to somebody next to me and i was like this game is awesome and you know it's midway through the first quarter i don't even know what the score was at that i, I don't think anyone scored in the score. first quarter i think it was nothing nothing after the first quarter but it was still such an entertaining game yeah, start to finish. One of the, I mean, again, that's the best game I've ever covered. Yeah, uh, that was actually going to be the follow-up to my next question. Besides Super Bowls, what is your, the best game that you've seen, you've covered, the, your favorite game that you've had the pleasure of working, besides Super Bowls? Uh, can I say when UMass beat Syracuse and lacrosse back at Garber Field? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it's hard to say. There's been so many good ones in terms of, like, the Patriots and everything. So uh, I covered, like I was saying, I covered the 07-08 Celtics. So that NBA Finals, 
run was incredible. Yeah, what, what was the game uh, the that game, what was the game that Pierce hit the and one three pointer? I think that was either game one or two or something like that. I don't know if that was the same game when he came when he was wheeled off in the wheelchair, but he had that one moment where he leaned into someone, he drew a foul on a three pointer and hit the and one. And remember that was probably the craziest I've ever seen in the garden. The new garden. Yeah, there was and uh I mean, my my favorite game from that run was Game Seven against the Cavs because Pierce and LeBron were just going shot for shot all night long, and there was like the PJ Brown jumper, there was the, the jump ball. I mean, it was the whole everything about that night was incredible. Actually, it might even been an afternoon from what I remember. But uh, and then you got the uh, the crazy free throw, uh, the the way the ball bounced at the end there. I forget who. Was it Pierce who had the, the free throw? And, you know, the thing hits, like, the front of the rim. It keeps Van Horn's the thing. You know, bounces straight up in the air. Finally goes in. And I remember Pierce said after the game, that was the ghost of red helping the ball get in. I mean, I, that that night is is a, that's a game I'll never forget. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that 08 run was fantastic. I think it gets, you know, I don't want to say forgotten, but it's definitely not the first thing you think of when you think of this amazing run that Boston's been on for you know, 15 years, almost 20 at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone talks about 51, the Pats dynasty, c- the Sox coming down from down 03 against the Yankees. That 08 run was crazy. Um, almost ended in the first round because they almost lost to the Atlanta Hawks in the first round, and everyone was freaking out, but it ended up working out for them. Yeah, that was, man, that was a fun team to cover. That was uh, that was my first chance to cover a you know, I, I did some. I was the editor of a Red Sox section at 07, but I wasn't at the park every night. It was like you know once or twice a homestand. Seeing that uh, that 07 08 team operate on a daily basis was was really cool because you saw how much it meant to them every single night. Remember, like I remember they come together and it was can these guys really gel together quickly enough to win a title in their first year? No, probably not. So you know, let's, everybody's just like, all right, gear up for 08 09. And then they come out to they're like twenty one and two or something absurd to start the season, whatever it was. And uh, it was wow, this something special is happening here. And then the following season, I, I covered them as well. And that's when you realize that the NBA uh, on a nightly basis could get kind of boring because they realized how good they were, and they would sleepwalk through like three and a half quarters against the Bucks, and then turn it on for the final seven minutes and win a game. And it was just like, oh my goodness, this is excruciating compared to the first season when it was going 100 miles an hour for 48 minutes a night. Uh, and that was just, man, that was a fun run to, to be able to witness firsthand. Yeah, for sure. It was fun to watch. Uh, I, was, I, was like, I was like 12 years old when that happened. That was that was a, definitely a fun team to watch, especially considering the year before they were so bad. They lost like 15 in a row at one point. It was brutal to watch that Celtics scene beforehand. But then the year after that, 07, 18, that was definitely fun to watch that whole season, especially in the summer. Uh, with the playoffs shifting back to the Pats for final couple questions um, do you have the slightest idea of what the Pats are going to do in the draft in a couple of weeks a lot of people thinking they might go front seven help o-line help they might get Mason Rudolph they might trade up to get someone I have no idea what's going on do you have any idea of where they're leaning if I knew I would have a job paying incredible money and I, I don't even know where I'd be located but man I don't know if anybody you know Belichick probably doesn't even know what he's doing right now I yeah. mean it's really like that, that whole best player available mentality it's the way that you're supposed to do it it's smart and uh, they, they're true to it I mean they have because they're 23 and 31 
those are prime spots to get a left tackle, to get a tight end, uh, maybe a, a pass rusher like a defensive end. That's you know that was the same neighborhood where they got Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower back in 2012. Or if the right quarterback is there, the right quarterback falls out of the top ten, you got the ammo to trade up and go after that guy. So they're just like that's a sweet spot at three positions that they or four positions they definitely need. So they can stand pat and be just fine. Or, again, if you have that quarterback that you have a total amount of conviction in, if you want to get aggressive and go get him, then you can do that as well. So trading Cooks, was it gave them all the flexibility in the world to do anything that they want. And given how the Patriots function, they probably weren't going to – you know, keep Cooks anyway, as I would have loved to have had him. The idea that he was underwhelming at all this past season, I think, is blasphemous considering he had over a 1,000 yards receiving. He was very, very good. Uh, he wasn't Randy Moss, but no one really is Randy Moss. But they probably weren't going to resign him. He wanted a lot of money, and that's just not how the Patriots roll. And, you know, setting themselves yeah. up for a good position in the draft this season, I, I don't hate that idea. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a trade that they absolutely had to make. And, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. I, I had written about Cooks uh, two or three times from the end of the Super Bowl until the trade about, like, look, this probably isn't shaping up for them to be able to keep him on a hometown discount because he definitely would have given one I feel strongly about based off the indications he was giving me last season. But when you're talking about a guy who can make $16 million a year in free agency, a hometown discount becomes, like, 14 so when you're talking about the Patriots, that's just it's not practical. Now, they would have been fine to keep him for one more season. If they let him walk, they let him walk. But when the Rams came with the 23rd pick, it's like, Might oh, as well get goodness. something for like, him. That's a no-brainer. Exactly. Um, so, you know, hate to hate to see him leave, but it's, it's kind of what they had to do if that was the best offer that they had for him. Uh, last question here. It's kind of two questions rolled into one. Way too early predictions for both UMass football and the Patriots. And a follow-up question to that, uh, will you be in Amherst or Boston to celebrate when UMass and the Patriots make history by being the first, you know, same state, like, teams to win both a college championship and a pro championship? That actually might be a lie. That may have happened before. But, you know, maybe UMass and the Patriots pull it off again. Uh, look, if it involves UMass, it hasn't happened before. So we'll, we'll <laughs> go with that. I mean, it's, it would be history. Uh, look, if the Patriots are somewhere, I'm probably not far behind. If UMass is in the national championship, I don't care what the price is. I will be in the building doing whatever I need to in order to, you know, to be a part of that. But uh, prediction, I mean, how many games are they playing? Probably 12. 12. So then you add a couple playoff games. So that puts them at 14-0 and if my math is right. Yeah. So we'll go with that. And then with the Patriots, I mean, even if they have a bad season, they're going to win 12 games, and they're going to be in the AFC championship. Yeah, 12, 12, so, 12 and 4 is going to be the apocalypse, and they may not have home field advantage for the AFC championship game, which I still think they're going to win. Uh, that's that's I mean, how it goes in New England. Yeah, that's a pretty good basement to have. You know, worst-case scenario, you're 12 and 4, and you're in the AFC championship game. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, thanks so much. Again, that was Jeff Howe, now with The Athletic, formerly of the Boston Herald, but he's joined The Athletic Boston, which is starting up tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We've got some good stories lined up uh, for the first week, and especially the first two days. We're going to have a little two-part thing going on. That's about as much of a tease as I can give you, but mm. I talked to... Uh, talk to Jay King, our Celtics guy, and he's got a really, really cool story uh, 
up his sleeve. I'm really looking forward to reading that. I, I think it's going tomorrow, but I'm not sure at some point this week. Not to put too much pressure on him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got this is, uh, this is an important launch for us. And I think a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to make sure we get some good stuff this week. So check it out. It'll be, I trust me, everybody on board is pumped about it. Yeah, I say this, that go, it starts tomorrow, the 10th. We're recording this on Monday the 9th. You might be hearing this, I don't know, May 15th. I have no idea when you're hearing it. The Athletic starts, Boston Athletic starts April 10th. Uh, so that makes sense for it to be tomorrow. Jeff, good luck to you, buddy. Thanks for coming on, giving me the time. I really appreciate it. This was a great talk. Uh, and best of luck to you at The Athletic. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was a fun time. My pleasure.